I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, and also John chapter 9, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 10, verse 21. In this passage, in these passages, we're going to see the following events in Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, Jesus had just dined with Mary and Martha in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem. Therefore, we're going to assume that these events take place in Judea around Jerusalem, but that's not certain. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles back in John chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. That would place these events that we see in today's reading in the fall before his crucifixion. We'll talk more about chronology at the end of today's reading. Now, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. Verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors therefore... And they which before had seen him that he was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. 
These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. As I mentioned, this is perhaps my favorite story of the Gospels. Not only is the story pretty entertaining, it also captures the essence of the big problem with the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. It was corruption. So here we have a man who wasn't just blind, he was born blind. Notice in verse 2 the question that Jesus' own disciples ask. They say, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Jewish paradigm obviously held that sickness was as a result of sin, despite the fact that the entire book of Job serves to dismiss this very notion. Look at the... uh, article that I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled Trial Versus Chastisement for more insight into this subject. We'll see in verse 34 that the Pharisees also held to this incorrect notion that all sickness was as a result of sin. I suppose the book of Job was not on the frequent reading list of first century Jews. However, Jesus sets the record straight in verse 3 when he tells the disciples, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. He becomes a source of real irritation to the Pharisees in this passage. After being healed by Jesus, the previously blind man faces intense interrogation by the Pharisees. I mean intense. The Pharisees' first tactic is to discount the miracle by instructing the healed man and say, Hey man, just say it didn't really happen. Well, that failed. The man stuck to his story. Then they try to minimize the impact of the event by pointing out that no godly healer would do such a miracle like this or a healing on the Sabbath day. The healed man just can't buy into that theory. He maintains that Jesus is a prophet from God. Now watch it. You're about to step over the line with these guys. Don't you realize that they have the power to put you out of the synagogue if you don't cooperate? But how can the man deny what has happened to him? Then the healed man's parents get the call and are prompted to deny all of this that it really happened. They've already heard that to admit that Jesus healed their son means getting their church letter pulled, so to speak. I mean, kicked out of the synagogue. That's recorded there in verses 22 and 23. His parents acknowledge that he is their son and that he was, in fact, born blind and now isn't blind. But how did it happen? Search us, ask him, they say. So what happens when you just report the facts? I mean, facts that the Pharisees just don't want to hear. Well, let's just read on. Wait a minute. Couldn't all of this have been avoided if Jesus had not gone to the measures he did to heal this man after all? We know from other passages in the gospel accounts that people were miraculously healed by Jesus by actions as simple as merely touching the hem of his garment as was the case in Matthew 14:34 and 36, paralleled by Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. It must be that the healing procedure Jesus uses here in this passage, in verses 6 and 7, was designed to challenge the hypocritical practice of Sabbath-keeping by these Pharisees. There we see that Jesus used his own saliva mixed with dirt to provide an ointment for the man's eyes after which the man was instructed to go wash his eyes out in the pool of Siloam. By pharisaical definition, that's work, and that's on the Sabbath day. 
Incidentally, the law of Moses contained no restriction regarding the practice of doctoring on the Sabbath day. You see, oral additions to the law by Pharisaical-style lawyers down through the centuries had determined more specific guidelines defining forbidden Sabbath practices. Therefore, even though the law of Moses didn't forbid a doctor from healing on the Sabbath, the Pharisees had their own set of rules that had deemed it a violation of the Sabbath work principle. So, let's work this so-called blind man over again. We see that in verses 24 to 39. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and ye did not hear him. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, here it is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is. And yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. When he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into the world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Those hypocritical Pharisees, they're still irritated over Christ having healed the blind man from birth on the Sabbath day. Of course, the real problem was the testimony of the people standing by watching this miracle. We already saw in verse 22 that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, he'd be kicked out of the synagogue. The Pharisees felt they must do some damage control here. I mean, what are the people going to say after witnessing this? After giving up on his parents, they turned their heavy-duty questioning on the blind man himself, again saying, We know he's a sinner, shout the Pharisees to the blind man. Frustrated, the blind man replies, Don't know about that, but this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. Now, the blind man, he's no theologian, but he makes a very doctrinally sound statement to the Pharisees in verse 31 when he says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Oops, newly sighted man, you've gone and said the politically incorrect thing now. Of course, he just captured the essence of Proverbs 28.9, which says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Then there's Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, that says, 
But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Let's face it, the Pharisees certainly had their opportunities to heal this previously blind man themselves, if they'd had the ability to do so. So what happens to this man on his first day ever of seeing a Pharisee? Well, those arrogant, white-robed, teflon-wearing, holy-acting, prayer-chanting hypocrites kick him out of the synagogue. Who wants to be a member of a synagogue like that anyway? So when the newly sighted man meets Jesus again after being ejected from the synagogue, Jesus shows him something better than mere religion, and he accepts in verses 35 to 38. That's when Jesus characterizes the events of this day in verse 39 when he says, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Hmm. Obviously, there's a spiritual lesson in that statement, and the Pharisees just can't let this opportunity to challenge Jesus pass by. Let's read on. Beginning with verse 40, we see that some setups are just too easy. Verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Well, we see here that some of the Pharisees overhear Jesus talking to the newly sighted man in verses 35 to 39. They're particularly interested in Jesus' acknowledgement of being the Son of God. Some setups are just too easy, as in the case of the question the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 40. When they say, are we blind also? Nope. Blindness is not really what your problem is. It's much worse than that. With these words, Jesus goes into the monologue of chapter 10. Now, you really can't understand chapter 10 of John without really understanding the story that we've just read in John chapter 9, because John chapter 10 has everything to do with the incident between the blind man and the Pharisees and putting that whole thing into perspective. So now let's begin with chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is talking here, and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So what about those rascal Pharisees that kicked the blind man out of the synagogue after he was healed in chapter 9? Well, it's their turn to go around with Jesus himself, the Messiah. Let's do a shepherd analogy here. This shepherd theme will hit home with the Pharisees because of the use of this term by many of the Old Testament prophets with regard to the leading of the people of Israel. Jesus makes a sharp comparison between a good shepherd like Jesus Christ himself or hired hands like the Pharisees in this passage. Read it through and you'll realize that Christ is tagging these Pharisees as thieves and robbers. After all, how else do you explain their self-serving actions of chapter 9 when they rejected the healed blind man from the synagogue, when they kicked him out? But back to the Good Shepherd. How committed is the Good Shepherd Jesus? Well, verses 17 and 18 say it at all. The Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep and takes it back again. That's a direct reference to his voluntary crucifixion and resurrection. Now, let's take a look at the characters in this analogy that Jesus gives. The thieves and robbers, well, those are the Pharisees. The shepherd, well, that's Jesus. The stranger, uh, again, the Pharisees. The porter, well, I'm going with the Holy Spirit on this, and I'm pretty sure that's who Jesus intends for that to be. The doors, identified as Jesus. The good shepherd, Jesus. The hireling, well, now we're back to the Pharisees. The other sheep that he talks about, well, that may be a reference to Gentiles there. Now, read this passage again, if you're reading along, and insert those substitutions. And here's the bottom line to the passage. If you Pharisees really were shepherds instead of hired hands, you wouldn't have kicked this innocent man out of your synagogue as you did back in chapter 9, verse 34. But since you did so, you just demonstrated that you're really just a bunch of thieves and robbers. Even though he speaks using this analogy, do you think these Pharisees got the message? Well, I think so. Look at John chapter 10, verse 31. It says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Yep, they understood. Let's look at some of the finer points of this parable. First of all, notice verse 5. It says, And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. There's an interesting construction in the Greek there for that passage. The uh, double negative is used, ume. It adds strength to say, well, similar to our southern slang, there just ain't no way they're going to follow a stranger. In other words, very powerful negative. In verses 11 to 18, Jesus makes it clear that he'll be giving his life for the sheep. That's what a dedicated shepherd does, unlike the Pharisees who've just booted a man out of their synagogue. 
Notice the division among the Jews as a result of Jesus' words here. All of these were religious people, but some of them allowed their religion to get in the way of an authentic relationship with God. That can happen, you know. So here's the question. Since this parable was given in response to the Jews' question of John in chapter 9, verse 40, how universal are the statements of this parable? In other words, are the thieves, robbers, strangers, and hirelings only a reference to the Pharisees in Jesus' day? Here's what I say. If the shoe fits, wear it. Generally speaking, professional religionists should take this parable to heart. If form is more important to you than meeting people's spiritual needs, well, put the shoe on. If you're absorbed in man-made traditions to which you have attached the same weight as Scripture, then put that shoe on. I mean, let's face it. There are many practical Pharisees in fundamental churches today. Now let's talk about the chronology for a minute. We see that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles back in John chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. There's no indication that Jesus had left Judea between then and this occasion. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place each year in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. That places it in the September-October time frame in the fall season of the year. The chapter divisions in the Bible were added in 1205 by a guy named Stephen Langton, a professor in Paris. He later became Archbishop of Canterbury. He put these chapter divisions into the Vulgate edition of the Bible. Later on, it was Robert Stephanus, who was a book printer in Paris. He took over these divisions already indicated in the Hebrew Bible and assigned numbers to them within the chapter divisions themselves that were already assigned by Stephen Langton. While riding horseback from Paris to Lyons, he affixed his own verse divisions to the New Testament and numbered them within Langton's chapter divisions. Prior to that time, when folks looked at Old and New Testament manuscripts, there were no divisions, just one continuous long epistle from beginning to end. Well, that being said, there seems to be a break in time between the occasion covered in John chapter 9, verse 1, down to John chapter 10, verse 21. And we see in John chapter 10, verse 22, that the uh, time changes. It says in verse 22, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Well, the feast of dedication, now known as Hanukkah, was established as a memorial to the purification and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus on Kislev 25, 165 B.C. That's roughly the 25th of December. There can be no question, therefore, that we are now, in verse 22, in the 25th day of the ninth month, when this eight-day festival began each year. In the Greek construction of this sentence, the and, which is the Greek word de, at the beginning of verse 22, is not really indicative of a continuation of the events found in John chapter 9, verses 1, down through 10, verse 21 as might be suggested if you're reading out of the King James Version. So, plainly stated, there seems to be a two-month lapse in time between John 10.21 and 10.22, even though when reading this passage, it appears that perhaps we're looking at one contiguous event. Now, you may want to take a look at the commentary on John chapter 10, verse 22, and that commentary actually is going to be looked at and the passage read on April the 11th.
So it's for that reason that in between John chapter 10, verse 21, as we're reading chronologically here, and John chapter 10, verse 22, we've placed an entire section of Luke from Luke chapter 10, verses 37 to 54. And then before we actually get over to reading John chapter 10, verse 22 and following, we'll also be looking at Luke chapter 12 all the way over to Luke chapter 13, verse 21. This chronological order is preferred because of the fig tree parable that we find in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That would place the event found there between the seventh and ninth months of the year. Luke 10.37 through 13.21 seem to be chronologically contiguous. So now let's look at this passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. We see here that a dinner with the Pharisees turns, well, kind of ugly. Verse 37, And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touched not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation." Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye have entered not in yourselves, and then that were entering in, ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently, and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Well, now that seems nice, doesn't it? An invitation to dinner at a Pharisee's house. On second thought, maybe this wasn't intended to be a friendly dinner after all. Well, things turn ugly when the host, who's a Pharisee, marveled that Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating in front of all of these professional religious buddies who were present also. To the Pharisees, this was a violation of their religious practice. If you look at Mark's detail of this practice, on another occasion in Mark chapter 7, verses 1-4, through 4, here's what you read. 
Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. So you see, it was just another addendum to the law of Moses, which the Pharisees observed as though it were an integral part of the law of Moses itself. It's bad form for the host Pharisee to comment. He invites the reply and commentary from Jesus regarding their long list of man-made religious requirements. As a matter of fact, we observe that this statement and the reply of Jesus were made in the presence of not only other Pharisees, but also scribes in verse 44 and lawyers in verse 45. All of them heard this. Obviously, this was just another case in which the Jewish leadership were seeking to discredit Jesus as the Messiah. Well, Jesus begins his reply by addressing them as fools. As a matter of fact, Jesus several times in this discord uses the phrase, Woe unto you! The Greek word for woe is ui. It means disaster. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, You bring disaster upon yourself. Those are pretty strong words. And a grave indictment against the Pharisees, lawyers and scribes in this passage. Then we see that Jesus issues the following indictments against these Pharisees. Here's what he says. First of all, they make an issue of outward cleanness, but ignore spiritual cleanness in verses 39 to 41. Secondly, they meticulously observe extreme tithing practices of even the smallest items, spices and herbs, while neglecting to love fellow Jews, which was an indictment also leveled by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And that was against the Jews back in the 8th century B.C. in verse 42 is where we see that. Also, they loved recognition being honored in public places in verse 43. And then to top it all off, Jesus calls them as unclean as a grave. Look at the notes on Numbers chapter 19, verse 16 to see how unclean that really is. There we see that if one made contact with a grave, they were to be unclean seven days. So Jesus is telling these Pharisees that while they look clean on the outside, they're just as unclean as a grave. Jesus makes a more direct statement to this regard when he calls them whited sepulchers in Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven, and full of dead men's bones. Scribes get mentioned here as well in verse 44. Well, then Jesus tears into the lawyers of this group when he says the following. Their interpretation of the law of Moses created difficult burdens upon others, but their expertise in finding loopholes in the law allowed them to circumvent the very same burdens. He says that in verse 46. Here's another one. They honor the prophets of the Old Testament, but lawyers like them were responsible for their very deaths, the deaths of those prophets in the Old Testament. In verses 47 to 51, while Jesus is added, he uses the opportunity to unravel a bit of Jewish history. That's when he refers to the righteous men of the past who were persecuted and murdered 
because of their stand for God and for righteousness. Jesus mentions the Old Testament prophets here in verses 47 to 50. He references the death of Abel at the hand of Cain that took place back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He does that in verse 51, along with Zechariah, who was slain by Judah's king Joash, back in 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, which is paralleled in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 to 27. Jesus later brought up these murders again in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. And then lastly, with their interpretation of the law, these lawyers had taken away the key of knowledge. In so doing, they declined to enter into this knowledge themselves, and they prevent others from doing so also. We see that in verse 52. Obviously, this meal invitation had only been an opportunity for the Jewish leaders to discredit Jesus, as we see evidenced in verses 53 and 54, which say, And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Now, carefully note what brought on this pointed criticism by Jesus. It was giving the weight of God's law to extra-scriptural practices. I can't help but think of all the extra-scriptural practices that exist in churches today. Practices that are treated with the same level of importance as scriptural standards themselves. Scriptural standards for godly Christian living. What would Jesus say about that? If it was wrong for the Pharisees to do that, then it's still wrong for us to do it today. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.